a couple years ago, I worked for a corporation called Hy-Vee. How many of you guys have heard of the name Hy-Vee? It's a grocery store, okay? Schaefer has, Keith has. Um, I worked there when I went to college. They are a grocery store corporation based in Iowa, Kansas City, Minnesota, um, so a little bit further west of here. But they are um, one of the most impressive organizations that I've ever personally worked for um, because they had such an emphasis on the quality of their company. Um, I started working there when I was 18, when I was a freshman in college. I'd worked at another grocery store, but the HR manager there was a former graduate of the college that I went to, and he would hire faith students um, almost just on the spot so that they would have a very you know, high-paying job, or at least I thought it was high-paying, but th- that, so that they would have a job while they were working in college. And as I worked there, I'll never forget the motto that they had. It said, a helpful smile in every aisle. Now, if you guys have met me, I think I'm a pretty happy person, but I don't tend to smile just in my natural state. It's a little bit harder for me to be smiley and perky as I'm talking to customers especially. But they said that so much that it was ingrained into your head that you were supposed to smile when you saw the customers. And if you weren't smiling, they could tell your employee and then with a smile, they would come and they would find you and tell you that you needed to smile while you were talking to the customers. It was quite the corporation. And when I think about what made Hy-Vee what it is, the store that I worked at had about 600 employees at it and it had all these different departments and things that were made up of it. There are a couple of things that stand out to me. Uh, first of all, they were extremely efficient. I'd worked at another grocery store. It was a small little grocery store where I grew up. And you know how some of those businesses can run. Sometimes the efficiency isn't super high. But I thought this store was very efficient in how they got stuff done and how they loaded stuff and all of their operations with employees. They were just extremely efficient. Secondly, they had very clearly defined goals. All the employees, if you were a bagger, if you were a cashier, or you were a high-up management assistant manager, you would have a meeting every quarter that you would get paid to go to. And they would say, these are our goals for quarter. And they would set those out. They'd have a presentation. And then you were expected to know what those goals were. Some of them may not have even applied to your department, but they wanted everyone to be on the same page with where they were going as a company. And I was really impressed with that. And then finally, they had a unified effort. Now, as you work in retail, you know that sometimes not everyone is quite as bought into the mission as some other people. Some people are this just there to get a paycheck, and that's okay. There's something about that corporation, maybe it was just a store that I was at, it seemed like everyone was bought into what they were doing. Everyone had the same mindset, and I think that made it a very good grocery store to work at. Now, I'm not saying this all today so that you guys will drive a couple hundred miles out west and go shop at Hy-Vee or something like that, but I'm saying this because they had a mission and they worked effectively as a company, We see that here in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we see Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's telling them, this is what your mission is, and then this is how you work efficiently as a body to accomplish that mission. We've been talking about proclaiming Christ and how that's our theme for the year. We are proclaiming Christ here in Trafalgar, Indiana as Sycamore Bible Church, and that's what I want our focus to be on. But this morning, we want to see that we want to do that in a healthy church. Now, as I say that, I'm in no way trying to say that our church is unhealthy or that our church doesn't try to do these things. But we all, at different points, need to be reminded 
what it means to be a healthy church. We all need to be reminded what it means to work efficiently as the body of Christ. And as I read this passage, one thing stands out to me that I'm going to explain as we go throughout the entire sermon, and that is that God wants our church to grow. Now, this growth may not look like what we normally think it is. This growth may not be what all the other churches are aiming for, but God wants our church to grow. And we see that very clearly here in Ephesians chapter 4. We see that a healthy local church is a growing church, a church that is the growing body of Christ. And so if we want our church to grow, we should desire that it is healthy. And that's really our sermon idea this morning. That's what we want to see from this passage, that we must strive to be a healthy local church. And a healthy local church is a local church that is growing. And we're going to talk about what that means as we go throughout this passage. Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand this as he writes this letter to them in Ephesians. He's been writing about their identity in Christ in chapters 1 through 3. And if you were here for Sunday school, we talked about how the church is a building. The church is a building with Christ as the cornerstone. We are built on him, and then he allows us to stay together. And so the first three chapters help us understand who we are in Christ. And then in chapters 4 through 6, we realize how we should live because of that identity. So if we're going to strive to be a healthy local church, then I think we need to understand what this passage is saying because it's one of the, I think, one of the most clear passages on church health in the entire New Testament. And so Tim read it, or Keith read it for us earlier. Let's go ahead and see in verses 11 through 12 that a healthy church, first of all, understands the roles of her members. A healthy church understands the role of her members. Look at verse 11 with me. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. We all have different roles within the body of Christ. We know in other passages that there are different gifts given to the church. Everyone has different abilities inside of the local church that differ from everyone else there as well. God orchestrates this so that the church can be efficient. But a healthy local church understands the roles of her members. And Paul talks about these roles in two different ways. He talks about, first of all, ministry leaders, and then he talks about all believers in general. So look at verse 11. We see that Christ, he's the one being talked about here from the previous verses, he gave these ministry leaders. Now, it'd be very easy for me to say as your pastor that because Christ gave these leaders that I am a gift and you guys should treat me like a gift. That's not exactly what Paul is trying to get at here, okay? He gave these gifts so that they could be used by the church. Christmas was just a couple weeks ago, and so we've all got Christmas kind of on our minds. I'm sure you've all had gifts that you've been given that you've been really excited about, and then I'm sure you've had gifts that you were given that you were less excited about. I think one of my favorite things to observe is when there's like a gift card exchange because it's, you know, $25 or so, but then you really see what do people think you're going to use. So my brother, he will often get $25 to a music store or something so that he can get piano books and things like that. Um, My brother Quinn will get um, gift cards to a Lego store so that he can go buy Legos. Uh, One year I got $25 to Wendy's. 
I don't know what they were saying about me when they thought I would appreciate $25 to Wendy's, but that's what I got during that gift card exchange. I'm sure you've had different gifts that you found more useful. So this Christmas, I got some books and I got a standing desk, which I've been trying to use. And as you get older, a lot of times the gifts you get are a little bit less exciting, but they're a little bit more useful for your everyday life. This last Christmas, as we were sitting there, a lot of my gifts were books. My brother Tritton is opening up a book and he takes it out of the wrapping and it says Deacons, God's Guide for Servants. And it was by Alexander Strauch. Now Tritton's 18. He doesn't really have any desire to be a deacon. We realized that we switched the presents on accident. That was supposed to go to me and I had some piano book that I don't know how to play that was meant to go to him. And while Trenton was sitting there, he said, you know, this is great, but I have no use for this at all. And again, I wouldn't have any use for a piano book as well. The gifts that we receive are important to us because of our use for them. You may, get a, or you may see someone else get a gift that you would have no use for. I would have very little use for a piano book. But yet for Trenton, that would make his day and he would sit at the piano playing it for us um, all Christmas long. Paul is talking about these gifts that are given to the church, and they're meant to be used by the local church, and he starts um, with apostles. He starts with these people called apostles. We know that apostles are men who saw Christ, the resurrected Christ, um, in Scripture, and they were taught by him. Now, you could argue that Paul was an apostle, and he wasn't one of the original 12. Yes, but Christ did appear to him on the road to Damascus, and he did receive some training from Christ as well. These apostles were given by Christ to the church for the establishment of the church. If we didn't have these apostles, the church would never have been established. We wouldn't have what we have today. We talked about this in Sunday school, but it was necessary for these apostles to establish the church because they knew who Christ was, they had heard his teaching, and then they could put those things into action in the church and teach others as well. As we think about apostles, they had some pretty unique abilities. They could heal people, they could speak in tongues, some of them, as was directed by God. We know that those gifts don't exist inside of our churches today. If you came here thinking that I was going to perform a faith healing or something, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but that's not an ability that I have, nor really does any other pastor. So why do you, are the apostles and prophets mentioned here? These are the gifts that were given to the church. Why does Paul mention them here? Well, if we look back at Ephesians chapter 2, and we read about this today in Sunday school, in verse 20, starting in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, these men were necessary for the establishment of the church. We needed apostles and we needed prophets so that the church could be established, but they're not necessary for today. They all died and that role passed away. Why do we not need them anymore? Well, because the church had been established and we have God's completed word that guides us in all things that we need for the local church. So we see that Christ gave the church apostles so that the church could be established. He also gave the church prophets as well. It's a little bit different than the Old Testament idea of prophets. They were people who did have a message from God. They also helped explain the scriptures as well um, to people 
And they were mainly meant to edify and explain the mysteries of God. Again, we don't have prophets today in that sense of the word because we have God's word that explains to us everything we need to know for the local church. We also see that there are these men called evangelists. Now today, you'll probably see some people who are evangelists as well, and they have big revivals and big meetings where people get saved, and I'm not criticizing them at all. I think what they do is fine, but I don't think this is necessarily what he is talking about, but that word evangelist simply means to share the gospel with someone. These are people who share the gospel, and people are saved. In the New Testament, Philip is called the evangelist. He shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch, and then Timothy is told by Paul to do the work of an evangelist. These are people who share the gospel with others so that others would be saved and added to the church as well. But I don't necessarily think it is a big tent revival meeting where thousands of people profess Christ. That's not what they are referring to there in Ephesians 4. The last rule that's mentioned is uh, these pastor teachers. There's a couple different ways you can understand this. It's set apart a little bit differently in Greek, and you can see it in English as well. It's not necessarily listed like the other gifts are. And so the question is, are there pastors and teachers given to the church, or are they somehow united in some special way? And I would say this, that they're probably somehow connected, and they're showing the two different roles of a pastor, but every pastor is going to be a teacher of some kind, but not every teacher is going to necessarily be a pastor. So it's showing the two different roles that a pastor would have in a church. He's to shepherd, he's to spiritually lead the church correctly, and then he is to teach the church as well. That's why God gave pastors to the church. That's why I am here serving as a pastor. That's my job, to shepherd the church and to teach the church as well. It's what I think is so interesting about pastoral ministry that it's one of the few professions where your job description is found in the New Testament for everyone else to read. So if you guys wonder what I'm supposed to be doing here, you can read Ephesians 4 and it says what my job responsibility is. So these are the roles. These are the people who were given to the church. And notice why they were given to the church. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That word equip is really interesting. We sometimes think of it differently than we should. It actually means to mend something. So you can mend a sail. You can reset a broken bone if it's been broken. But it's just restore something back to greater usefulness. A pastor is to restore the congregation back to greater usefulness. A couple years ago when I lived in Virginia, the pastor that I worked with there was a big hunter, fisherman, extraordinaire. And he got me to do something called bow fishing where you stood on top of a canoe. There's a platform on there. And you had a um, recurve bow, and it was at night, and the lights would shine into the water so that you could see the fish. You would shoot them with the bow. It had a little string on it. You would shoot the fish, and then if you hit one, you would reel it back in, and you would have the fish. I guess they were not patient enough to just fish with a um, normal fishing pole, so they had to shoot their fish themselves. And so I remember he was putting this platform on there for us to stand on, But it was a little bit weak in the middle from all the stomping around and all the people who had been on there. So we had to go back through and replace it with new wood and mend that together so that it could be useful again. Especially because I was a little bit bigger of a guy than all of them were. I wanted to make sure that platform was secure so that I wasn't swimming home with the fishes that night to get back to where we were going. Because again, it was very dark. 
He was mending that platform so that it could be used once again for bow fishing as well. Pastors, ministry leaders, the prophets, the apostles, the evangelists, all of these people were given by God to equip the church, to help the church achieve greater usefulness. So what does this look like? Well, what are the ministry roles called? So what does a pastor do to equip the saints? Well, he shepherds them. He watches over them spiritually. He leads the church. Then he also teaches them as well. But notice from this passage that the pastor, the evangelists, the prophets, and the apostles, they're not the ones only doing the ministry. This is something that we misunderstand sometimes as we think about the church, that the pastor, that those who are paid by the church are there to do all of the ministry. The pastors equip the saints so that they can do the work of the ministry. We also notice that pastors aren't excused from this either. It's not like I can say, well, I'm just here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, but you guys are the ones who have to go and do the ministry on your own. But a pastor is a believer too, so he is meant to go do the work of the ministry as well. Now, as I say that, we ask ourselves, what is the work of the ministry? Because it's a little bit of a broad term, and we don't always understand what it means. I would simply define it as this. It's what needs to be done. The work of the ministry is sometimes sharing the gospel with people. It can be sometimes discipling one another in the local church. I'm not saying that it's not that. Sometimes it's wiping off tables and stacking chairs and going and helping people, visiting people when they're sick, sending cards to church members who are shut in. It's doing what needs to be done within the local church. It's being willing to do all of it. All of us are equipped in different ways to serve the local church. We all have spiritual gifts. But sometimes we can either think that our time is done where we're able to serve the church, so we need younger people to serve it. Or sometimes we've been doing the same thing for so long in the church that we're not willing to try new things. We're not willing to serve in different ways. And this is something we all must be careful of, including myself. And we never think that any ministry is too high for us or too low for us. Now, there are different people who are gifted in different ways to serve the local church. I'm not saying that everyone is going to be able to preach or sing or help the local church in that way, but we should be willing to serve the church as is needed. So ministry leaders are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to help restore them through the different roles that they have. So the apostles and the prophets were part of establishing the church so that it could function And then the other roles help equip the saints. And then all believers, including those leaders, do the work of the ministry. You understand that this morning. This is what makes the body of Christ healthy. When we understand what our roles are in the church and we function in them correctly. Our church isn't going to be healthy if we don't understand this. Our church isn't going to be healthy if we think that ministry is just for people who get paid by the church to do ministry. Our church isn't going to be healthy if I think I don't have to do ministry because I'm simply equipping the saints. This is something we all must get in on together if we're going to be a healthy local church. Too often, the Church of America can get into this mindset that their role is to just be a spectator, that their role is to just watch the service, that they don't even need to sing during congregational singing because church is just meant to be a show for them. And that is not the local church that we see in Scripture. It's actually a gathering that we participate in 
together. My ministry here is not to be the only one doing ministry, and it's also not to just ignore ministry and focus on equipping the saints, but it's to work with this church so that we can do the, ministry, the work of the ministry together. So I ask you this morning, what are you doing to further the body of Christ? What are you willing to do for this church to help it reach its capacity, to help it reach its efficiency? We all have different roles within the local church, and that's okay. We all have different things that we're going to be better at than other people. What are you willing to do for your local church? It's not the job for just the younger people. It's not a job for just the older people as well. It's something we all should do within the church to serve together and to be efficient. If we're going to be a healthy local church, if we're going to be growing like Christ talks about in this passage, we must understand our roles. This is how we act as the body of Christ. Notice with me, secondly, though, Healthy local church not only understands the role of her members, but it also aims for Christ's goals. What do you want this church to be? What do you want us to be known for? What goals do you have for your church? Well, Paul gives us some here, and these are really the goals that Christ has for the local church. Look at the end of verse 12 first. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So we're doing this to build the body of Christ so that it's continuing to be built up and growing until, then he gives us some different goals. Look at the first one. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We first see this unity of faith. Christ has goals for the church. Paul lists them here. And he first wants us to be unified. Unity is having a harmony or uh, a being of one accord. Everyone is meant to strive for unity in the local church. Paul isn't talking about churches that are really, really big in number, but not unified and have all these different factions and divisions. But one of the goals for the church is to be unified. But notice it's not just a simple unity, but it's unity of faith. It's unity in what they believe. We don't just want unity for the sake of unity. Now, the local church is such an amazing place. It's made up of different people with different personalities and different backgrounds and different lifestyles. But we have a unity, but that unity is found in Christ and who we understand Christ to be. This unity of faith, it's a unity of what we believe as Christians. And part of why God gave these gifts to the church and why the church does the work of the ministry is so that we can have this unity of faith. It is so that we can be like-minded. This is the opposite of what a lot of people in churches would try to promote today. They would say that we need to focus less on doctrine and focus less on our theology so that we can have more unity. That is not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that we should be unified in what we believe and we should strive for unity together. This comes as a result of ministry leaders properly training and properly equipping the saints and then believers doing the work of the ministry. Ultimately, perfect unity will be had when we get to heaven and we see Jesus Christ for who he truly is. For a lot of people say they'll argue on some theological positions that probably aren't as important as some other ones. And they'll say, well, I know when I get to heaven, I'm going to be right. There's a sense in which that's true. When we get to heaven, we're going to see Christ and we're going to understand who he truly is. And we know that ultimate unity is going to be found in heaven. Notice also, one of the goals is mature manhood. 
This isn't to say that women are off the hook here, but this is part of the illustration that Paul is using with the growing body. He uses this picture of the body of Christ, the body that is growing up, a body that is continuing to mature. And he says one of the goals for the church is that it would be a mature body, fully grown. I'm sure many of you have taken a child to the hospital and, or to the doctor's office and you've had them check to see how they're growing and if they're growing up and you've had them measured to see how tall they are. When I was a kid, my parents were always surprised at how tall I am and they kept having to raise the thing up because I started getting so tall. Um, it's a fun thing to see how children are growing. There's different tests within the doctor's office to make sure they're growing correctly, to make sure their growth is happening right. I know some people who have not grown correctly and they've either been not growing fast enough or they've been growing too fast. You want to make sure that you're growing properly. I had one friend who one of his legs was a couple inches shorter than the other one. And so his growth was kind of stunted because of that. Paul here is talking about growing as a mature body, a body of Christ that is mature. He's not talking about necessarily numerical growth, growing in number, having the biggest church on the block. But he's talking about growing in our maturity in Christ. When the pastors, when the ministry leaders equip the saints, when they do their job effectively, and when the entire congregation does the work of the ministry, then the body grows spiritually. I'm not saying that the church won't grow numerically as well, that we won't have people join this as well, but the body will grow spiritually. And this is what Paul is after. This is what he is trying to get them to understand that the goal is spiritual maturity of the body. How do we know whether or not they are spiritually mature? Well, I think that plays into the last goal, which is the fullness of Christ. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We grow as Christians, we grow as a body of believers so that we can be compared to Christ. He uses a couple different terms for measurement here that both refer to being measured to Christ. So notice we said earlier, Christ is the cornerstone of the church. He's the foundation of the church. He's what helps the church grow. He's what we're built on. But then he's also the one that we're being compared to as well. We're made in the image of God, as we understand from Genesis chapter 1. And part of being a believer is being further transformed back into the image of Christ. So this is talking about seeing how far we've grown in Christ. How many of you guys, your children, or you remember doing this as a kid, you would measure your height on the wall to see how far you've grown. And over the years, you'd have the little tick marks on the wall to see how far a person had grown. Right now, since I'm the oldest in my family, all the kids are measuring themselves to me to see how tall they're going to be. And that's how it should be because I'm the oldest. And so Quinn... Every time I see him, he's getting taller and taller, and he keeps telling me that one day he's going to be taller than I am, and he probably will at some point. We continually measure ourselves to Christ to see if we are like him. He is our example. This is the goals that Paul gives the church. This is how the body of Christ is to operate. But these aren't the goals that we normally have for the church, are they? These aren't the things that we normally want to see our church do. We'd like to see our church grow numerically in number. And that's not necessarily wrong. That can be healthy as well. 
We'd like to see our church grow financially sometimes, grow in our giving. We'd like to see our church grow in other ways, but these are the points of growth that Paul outlines here. So think about this. How are you growing in Christ? How are you growing into his image and likeness? How are we growing in unity as a church together? What are we united around? One of the interesting things to notice as you study church life and church culture are the different types of communities that churches have, the different things that attract people to a church, whether it's sports, children's programs, music, all these different things that attract people to church. But Paul is saying that what should unite us is our faith in Christ, our knowledge of Christ. That should be what unites us together as a church. It's not bad to have similar interests. It's not bad to have similar hobbies. But what unites us is our unity in Christ. And we must seek this growth together. We must seek to foster this community here at our church. We grow together as a church. We sing together. We study God's word together. We make disciples together. We evangelize together. And we sometimes even suffer together as a church body because we have this unity of faith. I will admit, I've seen this at different points in my life at different churches that I have been at. I've been in bigger churches. I've been in smaller churches. What is the one thing that keeps all of the church together? It is what we believe. We can't forget that as we seek to grow as a body of Christ. So are you committed to growing in Christ? Are you committed to this faith that we have settled on together as a church body? This is something we must strive for. But to do this, we must work effectively as a church body. And so we lastly see that a healthy church works effectively as a church body. Why is it important to have unity of faith? Why is it important to seek to measure into the fullness of Christ? We'll look at verse 14 with me. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. He first of all says that negatively, we want to be efficient as a body so that we're not deceived by false teaching. This is something very important for us to understand. You see all these new movements and all of these new trends going on in churches today, all the new things that people believe that really undermine the gospel itself. And you think, how could a church do that? How could they change their position on this? How could they deviate from God's word? How could they say that God's word is no longer inerrant? How could they say that Jesus Christ is no longer sinless, like so many pastors are now saying? What is causing them to do this? Well, they obviously don't have the right goals, and then they don't work effectively as a body. You see, when these aren't our goals for our church, but when we get focused on other things, we start to become susceptible to false teaching. It says, so that we may no longer be children. Now, I work with children. I've worked with a lot of different ages of children, especially the younger they are, which this word means an infant or a child that's not yet hit puberty. The younger they are, the easier it is to trick them or to convince them of something that is not true or to play some kind of joke on them, which I would never do. But some people might play tricks on children and convince them of things that aren't true. Paul is saying when we don't mature in Christ, when we don't have this unity of faith, then we are susceptible to false teaching. 
then we're susceptible to, notice what he says, to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This word that he uses, tossed to and fro, it has the idea of a ship and you're in a storm and you can't find your footing. Now, I grew up in Illinois and Indiana is very similar to Illinois. We all know that there's no big bodies of water around us unless we go north to the Great Lakes. And so a couple years ago, I went to the ocean and I had no idea how to swim in the ocean. And I'm not a very good swimmer to begin with. And so I didn't realize that where all the rocks were on the ground was the crashing point and that you needed to get further into the ocean so that you wouldn't have the waves crashing on you while you were swimming. And I'm a pretty big guy, so I thought that as long as I was on the shore, I wouldn't get carried away. But I realized just how powerful those waves could be. And if you're not careful, if you're not controlled as you're swimming in the ocean, it can be easy to be carried away by the waves. I know a couple different people who have gotten caught in a current. And unfortunately, they didn't realize that you had to swim with the current, not against it, to get out of the currents as well. This is the imagery that Paul is using here. You see, when we don't have the right goals, and when we don't work efficiently as a church, we're susceptible to false teaching. These new ideas, these new doctrines, the new trends that come out in theology that undermine the gospel, that undermine God's word, it can become far too easy for us to be deceived by them. And notice where they come from. It comes from human craftiness, from cunning, deceitful schemes. There are people planning this out so that people would be deceived. So we must be very careful. We all want to see our church do well. We all want to see our church grow, both in spiritual maturity and in number as well. But I see far too many churches emphasize growing in number growing in finances, that they are not unified in their faith. And because of that, they embrace this false teaching. Every church, to a certain extent, that does not stay to God's word, that does not believe the gospel, has not had a pastor who is faithfully equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, and it does not have believers there who are doing the true work of the ministry as well. We must work efficiently as a body. We must not be deceived by false teaching. The opposite of that, the reciprocal, the reciprocal of that, is that we speak the truth in love. And this verse is sometimes used a little bit differently than how Paul is describing it here. To speak actually means to confess. And we often think of confessing sin, I've done something wrong. But it's actually talking about like confessing doctrine. We have a doctrinal statement here as a church. We're not shy about what we believe on those things. and We confess that together. We speak that. We say that we believe that. And so what Paul is saying here is we are confessing the truth. We are holding to the truth. We are saying this is what we believe. It's not just telling someone that they're in sin, although sometimes we have to do that. But it's really we are telling the world as a church This is what we believe, and we are not shy about that. Do you ever talk to people from different churches? Maybe they have a little bit different theology than you. Sometimes we can become tempted to say, oh, we're all the same, and we all believe everything very similarly. It's not what Paul is saying here. He says we're speaking the truth in love. We must be careful that we're not just doing this to run people over and say, I have better theology than you do, and so you need to listen to what I'm saying. 
But we speak the truth in love as a church. In the book of 1 Timothy, Paul calls the church a pillar and buttress of the truth. You see, part of the reason the church exists, it is to proclaim Christ. It is to make disciples. I'm not saying that it's not that. But it is also to stand for truth in our world. And friends, if we don't stand for truth as the church, then no one else is going to. No one else is going to stand for truth in our world. Our churches, our church here must stand for what is right. But we must do it in love as well. It's not just enough to know what we believe and to tell it to others. We must be loving in how we approach them with it. Why does Paul add this word in love? Well, love is defined by Christ. Christ loved us. He gave himself to die on the cross for us. And so because Christ defines what love truly is, we must have our truth be defined by love as well. The body working efficiently is not deceived by this false teaching It's not carried around by this false doctrine, but it speaks the truth in love. And then lastly, we grow in Christ. Look at the end of verse 15. We are to grow up in him in every way into him who is the head into Christ. The Christian life is not meant to be stagnant. It is not meant to be done alone. We are meant to grow up into Christ who is the head. The head of a body is what we see. We see people's faces. We don't see their feet. We see their faces. That's what we think of when we think of other people, what their face looks like. And Christ is our head. So he's the foundation of the church. He's also the head of the church. He's what people identify with the church. So we grow up into the head who is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. So Christ is the head, but he's also keeping the whole body together as well. Again, the church comes from many different backgrounds. We have many different people with different ways of growing up. But Christ is the one that holds us together as a church. He is what makes the body function. And as the saints are equipped to do the work of the ministry, this helps the body efficiently grow to become more like Christ. This is what the church is meant to be, a growing body spiritually together that stands for the truth and against error. So I ask you this morning, how are you connected to this church? Is it because you believe what we believe? Is it because you serve the same Christ and you want to worship him here? Is it because your friends go here? It's because this is what Your social life revolves around. You understand the gospel, what Christ has done for you, and is that what connects you to this church? Do you proclaim the truth of Christ to the world? But do you also do that in love? We see it all the time on social media and in the news. There are people who love to try to speak the truth, but there are very few who understand how to do it in love. And friends, that should define our church, that we are not shy about the truth, but that we do it in love as well. Are you committed to this mission? Are you united to what we believe? Then are you growing in Christ together as a church? Notice this is something we all must do individually. We all must grow in Christ. 
but then we grow together as well. What does that mean? That means that the body is only as healthy as its weakest member. We can't just say, well, we have so-and-so, and they're such a great Christian that they bring all the rest of us up to where they are. No, we're all united as a body together. We can't just say, oh, this person is growing in Christ. This person is doing the work of the ministry. So I can have a pass to just do whatever I want. The entire body is to be growing. The entire body is to be unified. The entire body is to be together. My mission, as I've said, is to proclaim Christ this year. But I want to do that together as a church. And I think it's such a wonderful picture for others to see and it's wonderful to meet for me to see when our church no matter what it is whether it's operation christmas child whether it's an outreach event whether it's simply sending cards to someone who's a shut-in when we do that together the older people the younger people the married people the single people all of us working together as the body of christ that is what our church should be about. That is what unites us as a body. So I want us to think about as we close, how does a healthy church proclaim Christ? Well, first of all, a healthy church proclaims the authentic gospel. Sometimes we're so anxious to share the gospel with someone that we don't actually give them the true gospel message. The gospel can be offensive sometimes, but we must be faithful to share the authentic gospel with others a healthy church stands for truth and rejects error there's some things that we may not agree on and that's fine we can be in the same church but the things that matter the gospel god's word how he's revealed himself in scripture that does matter we can't be shy about that we also must do this in love as well a healthy church gathers around a common goal Are you committed to what we are doing here, making disciples, proclaiming Christ? Are you committed to this goal? And then lastly, a healthy church trusts Christ with the outcome, knowing that he is the one that is the foundation of the church, and he is the one that enables us to grow up into the body of Christ. A couple years ago, well, I guess it's been more than a couple years now, I was a freshman in high school, I was playing a game with my friends, and I fell, and I hurt my knee and I ended up tearing some cartilage from my knee and it was about two inches of cartilage and I needed that to grow back and so they did surgery on my knee I had a big scar that's still there and I had about six months of being on crutches I had about three weeks where I was at my grandparents house I couldn't go up the stairs to be at my room at my house and it was kind of frustrating because as the doctor said I was waiting on the cartilage to grow in my knee You know, you can't see it, so you can't really see if there's progress there, and you're getting impatient. You want to be able to walk again and play with your friends, and so I remember just being very impatient, but I had to trust that the doctor knew what it took for the knee cartilage to grow back, and so I took some medicine, I took some vitamins, and eventually, after a long, painful process, that cartilage ended up growing back in my knee to help my body function like it should we must trust christ with the growth of our church he's the one who died for us he's the one that unites us here together and he's the one that we are seeking to proclaim and so my prayer for us as a church is that we would do this 
together be focused on proclaiming Christ here.